afternoon, everyone. Uh, good afternoon, Mu'in. Uh, we are delighted to be here with you talking about a uh, number of issues uh, related to the diplomatic efforts around the Syrian crisis. Uh, we are very honored uh, to have Mu'in not just with us on this uh, uh, program, but also uh, with us in the studio. Uh, he was here giving a talk and we snatched him. Uh, just a bit about Mu'in. Uh, Mu'in, besides being a dear friend, uh, is former head of political affairs for the Office of the UN Special Envoy for Syria. And he's also co-editor at Jadalia. He's a prominent writer whose writings for the past 20-some years have uh, adorned various uh, publications worldwide. He's been on uh, various media uh, continuously a very sought after analyst uh, of the uh, uh, highest variety and i uh, was actually uh, fortunate to have met him long time ago and then we uh, kind of uh, snatched him uh, at the arab studies institute uh, i am sitting here with him and uh, uh, welcome mine hi bassam thank you and it's uh, very good to to be here with you yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, same here. I uh, I don't want to uh, uh, delay the conversation any longer. Uh, we actually would like to know, uh, considering uh, some of the uh, uh, events that we've been witnessing recently and the confusion, this is uh, now around the middle of October. Uh, w what is your uh, overview uh, regarding the diplomatic efforts that are mostly failing uh, on uh, the question of Syria? Well, that's a very broad question, and I think it's useful to look at it a little in um, in historical perspective of how it's evolved since 2011, 2012 till today. If you recall, the um, initial international document that was uh, produced on Syria was the 2012 Geneva communique, um, and that was more or less a um, uh, Russian... American agreement mediated by the um, UN Arab League envoy at the time, Kofi Annan, and the key clause in that agreement called for a, um, a transitional governing body with full executive powers. In other words, it sought to lay out um, the basis for a political transition in Syria shortly after it was um, agreed between the Americans and the Russians, Moscow and Washington, of course, fell out over the question of um, the role, if if any, of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad in the political transition, where the Americans um, stated their view that a transitional governing body with full executive powers meant that the Syrian president had to more or less be removed from, uh, from office um, from the outset of the... Uh, of the transition because they considered him to no longer be a legitimate ruler and all the rest of it, whereas a Russian position was that um, the Geneva communique says nothing about the fate of the Syrian president precisely because nothing had been agreed. And it was a discussion over the role of Assad that, had been, that remained central um, to the diplomatic debate for a number of, uh, a number of subsequent uh, years. And... Then I think you had a um, key turning point in 2015, which is, uh, first of all, it seemed as if uh, the regime was um, becoming increasingly weak, uh, disintegrating from within 
and losing ground from without, uh, if you will, particularly with the capture of Idlib um, in the fall of 2015, its inability to encircle uh, uh, eastern Aleppo or to seal off the Syrian-Turkish border, and so on. And then in September of last year, you had the direct Russian um, uh, military intervention. And I think the first diplomatic consequence of that intervention was that it took regime change off the table. Um, in other words, that the Russians, uh, the Russian intervention um, guaranteed the continued existence of the Syrian regime and of Bashar al-Assad uh, uh, at its head. Second of all, you then gradually began to see um, a significant change in the diplomatic formula for resolution of the Syria crisis from um, a political transition as enshrined in the, um, uh, in the 2012 Geneva Accord to a much vaguer formula, which you had in the Vienna communique and the statements of the International Syria Support Group, um, which were finally ratified in um, United Nations Security Council Resolution 2254, of last fall, and the fundamental difference, I think, is is that it, um, as I said, it took the question of regime change off the table and went quite a ways from the initial position of a transition um, without Assad, meaning one in which he w he was he meant to be removed either at the outset or at the conclusion of the transition, um, to a process in which his position was no longer a central issue because um, I think it would be fair to say that the Russian version of a political solution gradually won out, and that called for a political expansion rather than a political transition. In other words, this formula of what was termed a national unity government, where you would have certain opposition groups who would be prepared to disassoci disassociate themselves um, uh, from, let's call it, the irreconcilable um, uh, opposition, and they were meant to be given a stake um, in Syrian political institutions and governance and so on. And it was as, ironically enough, as this um, uh, formula was gaining currency that you began to see, I think, what what could be um, certain differences between Moscow and Damascus. In other words, I think... It's, it's my impression that the, Sir the Russian military intervention in Syria was very much uh, done for the purpose of um, uh, not so much of achieving a military victory, but of enabling a political solution that reflected uh, Moscow, Moscow's uh, interests and vision much more closely than that of Washington. But the sticking point was that I think um, uh, Damascus remained, remains fundamentally opposed to any political process, even one that, in the view of some of its closest allies, uh, very closely reflects its own, um, its own priorities and interests. And so what you've had most recently is um, the Russian-American agreement on a um, uh, ceasefire in Aleppo and nationally uh, leading to the resumption of a political process in early September, then um, uh, that broke down and you now have an all-out 
military effort uh, by the Syrian military, supported by uh, various uh, militias and, of course, by the Russian Air Force, um, to retake eastern Aleppo. Um, and I think the, the general assumption is that if eastern Aleppo is reconquered uh, by the government and uh, by the Syrian military, that this will mean effectively um, the end of this phase of the Syria conflict. It would um, transform uh, the rebellion against uh, the Syrian government into a lower-level rural insurgency, while the government will be in control of, of all the main cities, um, uh, all prevent, you know, all, uh, control all the main cities in addition to the majority of, uh, of the Syrian uh, population. And, and should this happen, we will then again um, uh, be confronted with this question of what happens next. Will the Russian uh, priority of having a, um, a political solution uh, that reflects their interests um, and that will, that will basically seek to leverage the military uh, military victory that they would have achieved in Aleppo and their attempt to leverage that into a political solution that meets their, their interests, will that win out? Or will Damascus once again be able to leverage the Russian and Iranian and, and other military support to not only reject any political process, but to continue going forward with an intention to achieve a total and comprehensive, in my view, unattainable um, uh, uh, military victory over any and all um, armed opposition groups. Thank you, Mu'in. This was actually quite illuminating. And uh, in light of what is happening now, uh, I have a couple more questions and then we sure. will release you. Uh, one of them is... Uh, uh, why have all these agreements uh, failed? I mean, I mean, beyond the obvious that uh, people would like to, you know, uh, uh, improve their leverage before they uh, actually conclude an agreement and so on. It's w w what what is the gamut of of, of reasons, uh, structural and otherwise, that uh, shed light on the failure. Well, I I think there's no single explanation about why these agreements have failed and not been implemented. I think there's there's a set of explanations, um, some of which apply more to some agreements than others. So, for example, if you take the um, uh, 2012 uh, Geneva communique and why that was never implemented, I think there are two main explanations uh, for that. The first is that, um, uh, as Kofi Annan has um, since stated, he was acting on the assumption that the fate of the Syrian president would be essentially no different than um, that of the Egyptian president or Tunisian president. Bear in mind, you know, this was in the early phases of what was termed the Arab Spring, and um, I think there was there was a um, uh, assumption that you know what what happened that because uh, things played out a certain way in in um, uh, Tunisia and in Egypt, you would therefore have something broadly similar uh, transpiring in Syria, and Kofi Annan therefore saw it as his primary responsibility um, to arrange for an orderly transition 
in um, uh, in Syria, and essentially to provide uh, Bashar al-Assad with a graceful exit. The problem, of course, was that um, uh, Syria was a different kettle of fish, and Assad had no intention of availing himself um, of any exit that would be offered to him uh, by uh, by the United Nations mediator and, or anyone else, graceful or otherwise, and was determined um, uh, to hang on uh, to the bitter end. And here also, you you know, people were making the analogy between Libya and Syria, and of course, these are um, fundamentally different uh, cases. I mean, it's one thing uh, for NATO and and other powers to begin bombing Libya, which was ruled by a thoroughly friendless um, uh, regime, which had on the one hand uh, renounced all its old friends and was at best mistrusted by its new partners, whereas in in Syria you had a very different situation. Um, uh, Syria was Iran's for for many years only, but in in the current phase, its main um, Arab ally. Um, it had very close uh, relations with, for example, Hezbollah. It had long-standing ties going all the way back to. Uh, the 1950s and 60s with uh, with Russia and so on. So um, there were many more obstacles to a Libyan scenario in Syria that effectively made it impossible. I think there's also another um, explanation that applies uh, quite pertinently to the breakdown of the most um, uh, recent agreement between the Russians and the Americans, the early September agreement, because bear in mind, that was a, that was not an international agreement. Um, it was not a UN or UN mediated agreement. It was rather a bilateral Russian American agreement. And the problem here is that I think many people, when they look at these um, uh, diplomatic initiatives, seem to be looking at them almost through Cold War uh, Cold War lenses, in the sense that people assume that. If Moscow and Washington can agree on something, it will therefore necessarily translate into implementation on the ground because the way things have, um, because of the way things happened during the Cold War, where the superpowers agree on something, the regional proxies fall into line, and then the local actors have no choice but to um, uh, hold themselves to any agreement that are, that's reached by the superpowers because to defy um, uh, such uh, diplomatic agreements would mean their end or elimination or whatever. Well, the world has changed a bit since the early 1990s. Um, if you look at the regional powers today, um, uh, they are in fact much farther apart than the great powers are. I mean, you know, Washington and Moscow have their own differences. And um, uh, in recent months, there has been a, or years perhaps, there's been a massive escalation in Russian-American tensions, whether over Ukraine or now these accusations about um, purported Russian attempts to interfere in the American presidential elections or about all kinds of other things. But specifically on Syria, um, it's my impression that over the past several years, 
um, the Americans have quite substantially shifted their goalposts to the extent that the differences, not that the Russian-American differences, if limited solely to the Syrian file, if you will, are in fact um, uh, rather narrow. But more importantly, they're, they're quite narrow when compared to the gap that continues to exist between the various regional players, such as, uh, or primarily, of course, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And therefore, I would argue that um, when looking at diplomatic initiatives to resolve the Syrian conflict, while of course it's very useful to have the Russians and the Americans um, on board, the real sticking point is in the region. Um, Iran, for example, is, is not a Russian satellite state um, the way, let's say, that you know, Cuba or Vietnam were uh, during, uh, during the Cold War. Um, Saudi Arabia, uh, while being an American client state in many respects, has become increasingly autonomous in its foreign policy, particularly where the region is uh, concerned, and particularly during the second Obama um, administration. In other words, it's not a simple question of receiving orders from Washington and implementing them uh, faithfully. If you, you know, um, Turkey is another one that has been very much implementing an autonomous um, uh, policy with regards to uh, Syria. And, and so the point, the, the broader point I would make is that Russian-American agreement has been demonstrated to be an insufficient condition for um, uh, achieving a resolution of the uh, Syria conflict, particularly because one thing we're also clearly uh, seeing is that it's the regional powers rather than the great powers that have the primary influence over the local Syria, uh, Syrian actors. In other words, many of these armed opposition groups will answer to uh, Riyadh or Doha or Ankara um, before they answer to the demands of Washington or London. And similarly, I think it's fair to say um, uh, that um, uh, Damascus probably um, counts Iran and, and Iranian views, takes those into consideration to at least, as, uh, to at least the same extent that it shows consideration for um, uh, Russian priorities and interests. Uh, thank you, uh, Moin. This was um, really informative, and uh, I mean, I have a lot to say, but you know, you're, you're saying most of it, so I won't. I won't say very much right now. Um, can you uh, tell us something about uh, your your view of the um, uh, like your outlook? You know, what you think the outlook is, uh, especially in the sense that a lot of these uh, affairs are connected you know uh, what's happening in syria what's happening in iraq what's happening with the kurds and then their relationship with uh, turkey what's happening in the impending attack on mosul and what's happening with all of that in connection to something that is different but is also related and that is the saudi uh uh, bombardment of Yemen uh, and uh, how that also is connected through Iran 
being on the opposite side in that conflict as well. Um, is there something that uh, uh, allows us to see uh, some light as a function of all this complexity, or is it just complexity headed in the in the wrong direction? Well, unfortunately, I see um, very little grounds for optimism uh, with respect to uh, to Syria, um, particularly this side of a Saudi-Iranian consensus um, on the future uh, of Syria. And that will be a very long time in coming, I'm afraid. And, and, and as we've seen now with the Russian intervention, um, uh, I'm one who believes that the Russians were generally committed to implementing the September agreement uh, uh, with the Americans, um, but they were unable to compel uh, Damascus to follow suit be because their leverage on uh, the Syrian regime is, is not total um, uh, and unconditional because Damascus, on the one hand, can, if you will, play off Tehran, you know, play off Tehran against um, Damascus. It has other allies. It has allies who whose priorities are closer uh, to its own, and perhaps mo most importantly, it can defy its sponsors, because at the end of the day, everyone understands that those sponsors have no alternative to the currently existing um, uh, Syrian leadership. Uh, so in, in that respect, I'm, I'm pe pessimistic, at least for the shorter term. Um, the other thing is that I think... Um, uh, Neither the Syrian regime nor the bulk of the armed opposition have reached a point where they're prepared to renounce total victory. Um, political compromise is not yet really part of their vocabulary because each continues to harbor the illusion um, uh, that this conflict... Uh, uh, can be resolved through either a comprehensive and total defeat slash elimination of the armed opposition to the regime or through the military overthrow um, uh, of that regime. And I think neither of those is, is going to happen. But nevertheless, now in Aleppo, for example, you see a very determined push by the Syrian government uh, to seek to... Uh, uh, to seek to uh, conquer all of uh, East Aleppo. The Russians, again, see this as a prelude um, uh, to a fundamental uh, revision of, of the Geneva formula, as, as we were discussing earlier. But Damascus, I think, sees it as a beginning of the end of the Syria conflict, which they would define as a total and comprehensive um, uh, military victory. And here, I think there's also several other factors at play, one of which is, you know, um, even the Syrian leadership has admitted in, in, in a uh, speech uh, by the Syrian president last summer that the Syrian military is experiencing significant manpower problems. It's true that uh, a lot of uh, militias have been drafted in um, to help, but at the end of the day, I think the Syrian military would like to achieve as much progress on the quote-unquote battlefield as it can before that um, 
uh, military begins to disintegrate to an even greater extent um, uh, than it has already. And a, um, an additional issue, uh, although I don't think it's a central consideration, is that there's a general assumption that the administration, the American administration that will succeed the current one will have a more assertive policy um, uh, towards Syria, and that therefore, uh, for the government to fully control Aleppo prior to the installation of a new American uh, uh, president will very significantly limit the options available to the next American administration, um, should it be considering um, uh, greater forms of intervention in the Syria conflict. Thank you, Moeen. This was uh, pretty um, comprehensive. I have many questions to ask, but I know you have to head to the airport. Um, uh, would you like to uh, say anything that you think I didn't ask about or that is uh, burning inside you to say? Nothing, uh, nothing burning. Uh, just I uh, very much enjoyed uh, this discussion, Bassam, and, uh, and thank you very much. Do you feel a Trump presidency will resolve issues? I think it'll resolve everything. He's the only one who can. That, that's actually what I was thinking. Thank you very much, Mu'ayn. Thank you.